This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Silly on 980 CKNW. With the impact that COVID-19 has had on seniors in care facilities, what will the future of long-term care homes look like? BC Ferries will start to introduce more sailings as the busier summer season gets underway, but will it be enough for communities that rely on those tourism dollars? And nobody wants to pay it, but most Canadians expect they will have to. We'll take a look at COVID-19 surcharges. What has it been like overnight in different cities across the United States? Some of them with some curfews that were enforced, others that took it a little easier. But are the peaceful protests peaceful or are we still seeing problems? Well, we thought let's get an update on that as these protests over the death of George Floyd continue. Paul Violas joins us now with CBS News. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Simi. Uh, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. So what has it been like overnight uh, in, in hard-hit places like, for instance, New York City? Well, I can tell you, Simi, what's become more crystallized than ever before is the gross disparity between protesters and rioters. And unfortunately, they're lumped into the same category of oftentimes by, by U.S. media, but they could not be further from, from each other. The protesters, we're really not seeing much, uh, believe it or not. Rioters, we're seeing, and they're organized. They're groups. They're oftentimes financed in order to pull off what they're pulling off right now. And there are two different mantras. You know, the protesters clearly want to be able to voice their constitutional right and and express their feelings about, in this case, social injustice. Mm -hmm. The rioters have one goal in mind, uh, and that's by whatever means necessary. So their goal is to loot, to destroy, to set on fire, and to use the platform of the protesters. So basically what we're seeing overnight, rioters are hijacking the protests and the protesters. Right. Is it, does it come from the same place of kind of that underlying frustration and anger, though? Or do you think it's just mayhem for the sake of causing mayhem? I would have to go with, with option B. And the reason I say that is because... When you witness what's going on, when you listen to what's being said, when you see how well organized these groups are, you know, in social media and other platforms, their goal is is hate. Their goal is to destroy. I mean, now we've got, which we've seen the last two nights, I don't know if you guys have seen this, that in typically with, with the, 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 the target or is white upper to upper class neighborhoods, residences, where these groups now are going to focus their efforts to try to destroy homes and set them on fire. Again, nothing can be achieved by this except use the protesters' platform in order to wreak the, ha- wreak the havoc that they're, that they're looking to do. Right, and we know that, like, not last night but the night before, it was right across the United States in multiple cities. Are we still seeing that, or is it in fewer cities now? No, it's increasing. Um, and, and now, you, you know... Each, each night we're seeing a different area, and even smaller areas, Simi, that are popping up. You know, from, from major cities to much smaller cities, where you're finding 
these groups that are that are congregating and trying to pull off the same thing that you're seeing in in major cities around the country. So what do you think at this point, Paul, then is it going to take to calm things down? Because if they're waiting for, you know, words of reassurance or comfort from the top, that doesn't sound like it's coming. No, yeah, that, that's a safe bet, Sammy. There's no question about that. What they're waiting for is a good question. And, and I can tell you the answer to that is leadership. And we are severely lacking that right now, I hate to say, but it's the truth. We, don't, we, we, we failed from the beginning of how this was handled over a week ago in Minneapolis, which opened the door for things that we're seeing today. And unfortunately, well, what that has left us to now is going to be a much stronger hand in order to take the cities back. And you do not be surprised if you start seeing tanks rolling down Main Street USA in order to get order. That's something the president suggested, right, for, for New York City last night. Well, we're losing control of cities, Simi. And, you know, what we have here is a significant problem across the board. And we have to understand that, as in Canada, in the U.S., you know, a police department's job, whether it be your local police, whether it be the RCMP, it's their job to protect the totality of that community. But Paul, force, there for. force has not worked so far. Right. Like that's what they've been using the last couple of days. And as you said, it's growing. So how do they think that more of it is going to work better? Well, unfortunately, they've they've used a very what they've called soft touch approach. And what they're going to start to see now is pushing perimeters back, the use of Jersey barriers for vehicles and locking cities down and then just start arresting people in masses. And that's unfortunately what we can expect to happen next. Paul, thank you for your time on this this morning. Always, Simi. That is Paul Viola, CBS reporter in New York, talking about the situation down in the U.S. I know if you're like me, you watch, you read, you see what's happening, the pictures, and you wonder how is this going on? And there's such, there's like no delineation between peaceful protests in one block and then not peaceful protests in the next block. And I feel like all of it is just so much frustration and rage boiling around dealing with similar issues, but just being expressed so differently. And you wonder how are they going to get things to calm down when there are no voices from the top telling them everything's going to be okay. We're going to calm down. Let's listen. Let's find out what's happening here. Uh, It's another day that we're keeping a close eye on down there. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the big issues that has come out of this pandemic, one of the things that we've really learned is that we need to do better when it comes to our long-term care homes. Right across the country, it's a mixed bag of some being private, some being public, uh, you know, provinces having their own jurisdictions over there, but really a whole mix of policies and procedures. There are no uh, universal set of rules and regulations that care home operators have to follow much to the detriment of the health of the people who are residents in those long-term care homes, as we have been learning. So that is just part of the reason why we have seen so many outbreaks in long-term care homes across the country. Reason why numbers are so high in Alberta, or sorry, Alberta, yes, BC though as well, and Ontario and Quebec when it comes to deaths, it is because of long-term care homes and the conditions there. So Global News journalist Ross Lord has been digging into the issue of long-term care homes the last couple of days, and you can uh, read and see more of his reports on globalnews.ca, but we also had a chance to talk to him about that. 
Well, Ross, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this important issue this morning. Uh, You've been talking about long-term care homes right across the country. And what are you learning? Well, we set out to take a a longer and a closer look at this issue that, you know, so many of us have been watching, uh, sort of watching with disappointment, sadness, or at times even horror over the past couple of months. So we wanted to know how many long-term care homes there are in Canada, how many people are in them, those kind of things, and then to see what we can find out about conditions or or how those conditions are even um, uh, reported or how the information is assembled. So there are 2,100 long-term care homes in Canada housing 190,000 people, uh, twice as many women as men. Um, About half of them are uh, for-profit operators and then the rest are a mix of non-profit or public. Uh, some of that information is several years old, though. It comes from the federally funded research uh, group called the Canadian Institute for Health Information, better known as CHI-HI. Um, but this is where things get fuzzy because it's hard to get a complete picture of the long-term care situation in Canada because this group, CHI-HI, says only 8 out of 13 provinces and territories participate fully in its reporting system. And so... I'm looking at all these numbers thinking, okay, there's a lot of numbers here, but they're incomplete. And in going back and forth with this group, it turns out a lot of the provincial and territorial partners aren't really playing ball, or at least not fully, um, which to researchers makes it difficult to see the extent of the problem, right? So if you don't know how big the problem is, how do you know how to fix it? So we talked to uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, He's with the National uh, Aging Institute, and he says um, this is the time when provinces and territories need to be stepping up more, uh, doing more reporting on uh, conditions so that we can compare performances across the country because this information is meant to be used by policymakers. So he's calling for the federal government to get more involved and uh, spur more accountability. Did that surprise you then to find that out? I mean, here we have this system where we put an awful lot of elderly people in this country and that seems to be an important information that's lacking. It didn't surprise me that some of the information is old because through the course of covering a lot of news stories over the years, especially with government or sort of quasi-government or arm's length agencies, it seems like the reporting of numbers lags behind, uh, you know, the period that it covers. I guess it takes a long time to crunch crunch numbers and get them together and and make sense of them for the number crunchers. But what did surprise me is how many of these provinces and territories are not cooperating fully. And, um, you know, Dr. Sinha goes to far as to say that, you know, a lot of provinces are increasingly hiding data as the situations become worse when when they should be doing the absolute opposite. So then what are you going to be looking at in your next episode? So today we're going to look at what a future model might look like for long-term care. Um, The concept of a minimum standard of care, which is somewhere between a guideline and uh, a wish um, you know for most people in in healthcare that goes to the ratio of uh, nurses to residents so how many hours of care a day residents receive and that sort of thing and it seems like a lot of folks who've looked at this generally think there should be about four hours a day but should that be legislated mandated not everyone needs four hours a day some need two some need six 
so sorting that out, it's it, we talked to a, a, a researcher in Ontario, Shirley Sharkey, who did a report on this for Ontario uh, some years ago. And she said something I found interesting. She said the whole notion of a minimum standard of care itself is kind of revealing because she compares it to getting your brakes fixed in your car. Do you go and say, are these the minimum standards to yeah. get my brakes fixed? Exactly. You want the highest level of safety and quality you can get. So she says that reveals how little society has traditionally valued the elderly. So, you know, this this obviously matters a lot because... As we've seen, eight of ten people who've died in Canada from COVID-19 are in long-term care homes. This industry is a growth industry because of demographics that cost $22 billion a year. It's going to cost a lot more in coming years. So um, I think it's in all of our interest for that money to be spent wisely. Right. Do you get any sense then, and all the people that you've now talked to, any sense that this is going to be a turning point, that we will improve the situation, that the federal government will kind of step in with some standards and regulations? The people I talk to seem to think they will. Um, There's so much pressure on every government to make fixes, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, do you shovel a lot more money in there? You know, there have been some incentives for staff, uh, pay increases, um, recruiting drives. Um, you know, some people say it needs to be done in lockstep with other parts, like hospitals and, and other parts of the healthcare system. You don't just isolate one part and and concentrate all your efforts on there because everything is connected, home care, hospitals, long-term care. Um, you know, try to shift the balance maybe into things like home care, which politicians have been saying for decades and, you know, from most accounts have had limited success in doing. But, yeah, a lot of pressure to do something. So, so you know, the extent of the federal involvement, I think, is one to really watch because some people say bring long-term care homes under the Canada Health Act as hospitals are, which would provoke more accountability, um, would, would put them on an equal footing and, um, you know, force the provinces and territories to be more upfront about how they spend uh, that money they get from Ottawa to, uh, you know, to, to maintain and to improve health care. All right. We look forward to the next episode then. Thanks, Ross. All right. Thank you. That is Global News journalist Ross Lord, who has been working on a series of stories about long-term care homes and the system right across the country. You can read and see more about what Ross has been working on at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the crowds have been gathering all across the United States, of course, over what the last week or so now. They don't show any signs of abating, particularly in cities like Washington, D.C., where once again, looks like law enforcement is out in full force, even in the daytime hours now. You've got New York City as well. You've got Los Angeles with a curfew that they were trying to enforce, but still seeing thousands of people turn out and protesting anyway. So overseas, you've also seen these protests. It's like the the death of George Floyd has inspired protesters everywhere, but there's also local issues that they are having that the kind of the George Floyd death just kind of spurred all of this on. Even in France, for instance, to talk about the issues that they have with racism there, that you're seeing the same thing with protests going on with George Floyd as the inspiration for that. And you're also seeing this in the United Kingdom. Uh, they're having lots of gatherings there, some protests, and uh, they're actually kind of growing in numbers. They have been increasing to hold these as well. So you're really seeing this spread right across, well, countries all over 
over the world. Uh, in the United States, we're keeping a close eye on that as we're seeing, particularly, as I said, in, in Washington, D.C., where they're having some issues again today. But right now, let's find out uh, as well what is happening overseas. In a few moments, we're going to be speaking with Crystal Gumansing, who's our Global News, Global News European Bureau Chief, about that. Uh, we'll check in with her and find out what is going on. Good morning, Crystal. Hi there. How are you? Good, thank you. So what is going on? Where, first of all, where are you and what is going on? Well, I'm in Hyde Park in London, central London, and it's an absolute crush of people right now. We are just trying to make our way through a large group. They're sort of staggering the group being released from the park and heading out onto the streets. There is a movement between getting from the park and going around this. This eventually will take through the city of London and end up um, down near Parliament. There is such a massive, massive crowd of people. Um, everything here is, is an attempt to social distance, but with the numbers we're seeing, it's just really quite impossible. People are handing out masks and handing out gloves and trying to remind people that, you know, to stay as far away from each other as possible. But people here just want to be here. They want to express themselves. They want to show support. Um, and there is an overwhelming sense of hurt and anger and just desire for change. Um, and it, it is, honestly, listening to some of these stories from the, from the black community, it, it's heart-wrenching. And has this been one of many protests, Crystal, or was this, would you say, the biggest one so far? This is the second one we've had in London. There was one on Saturday that started at Trafalgar Square and ended up at the U.S. Embassy. That one was also just absolutely huge. We were talking about, honestly, I couldn't even give you a guesstimate as far as the numbers because the park is so large and there are so many people, um, it, it's hard to say. But it will be one of many that will continue. Uh, there's two more planned for this weekend. It is, it's fascinating to think that the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis has prompted all of this all over the world. What are people saying? It's just an expression of pain. It's an expression of anger. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of different stories that I've heard from people. There was one woman who I talked to, and I said, why do you want to be here? Tell, tell me about it. And she just said, I'm angry. I'm so angry. What would it be like if your brother or mother and And I talked to an, another man who just said, you know, this is, this is life. This is what we deal with from generations, from him. He would, his father felt it. And he said that, you know, his best hope isn't that lives are lost anymore. It's just that there would be fewer lives lost. Think about what that says to a family, to a generation. You're told, okay, well, chances are you'll know somebody who's killed, but maybe there won't be as many as I've known. Yeah. What is the police presence like right now, Crystal? There is a very, very large police presence. They are sort of mixed in the crowd and sitting on the outskirts of everything. Obviously, they want to keep it as safe as possible. It is very um, peaceful at this point. We're just talking to each other, chance that the chance of equality, the chance of Black Lives Matter, the chance of, of George, uh, George Floyd's name. Um, they are they're just here really pushing the message of can people understand, can specifically the white community understand and help change. All right, Crystal, thank you very much. You're welcome. 
That is Krista Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief in London today. And as you can hear from where she was, she's right in the middle of this uh, kind of roaming protest. They're starting in Hyde Park, but likely to move around the city of London. Heavy police presence, as she mentioned there as well. Uh, but again, this this death of George Floyd has turned into something that they're feeling all over the world in cities. We saw a large protest here, a thousand people in downtown Vancouver on Sunday. You're seeing protests in Toronto, in Montreal. Uh, so we'll keep you posted on how that is going, particularly how things develop and unfold in the United States today as well. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, as you've been hearing in the news today, we know that ferry service is increasing today between Horseshoe Bay and Departure Bay. That resumes with four sailings scheduled. We're going to talk more about this because more routes are kind of scheduled to come back online in the near future. Joining us is BC Ferry CEO Mark Collins. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pretty big day. You must be pretty happy about the resumption of this route. We we certainly are. You know, it was a, a very difficult decision to shut it down, and we're very thrilled to be bringing it back. So how is this going to work? Is it same as it ever was, just the four sailings per day? Uh, that's right. Four, sa- four round trips per day, two from each side. Uh, that uh, gives us about half of the capacity we would normally have at this time of year, because normally you'd see eight round trips a day. But it's a, it's a gradual reopening of the route, uh, and we're still operating under the Transport Canada guidelines of 50% passenger capacity. So uh, capacity on the route is limited compared to what people are used to at this time of year, but it is consistent with the demand that we're seeing. And so you're seeing demand slowly increase as well? Yeah, you know, at the at the depths of the pandemic, we were down about 80 to 85 percent. So right. it was just just incredibly dramatic. Uh, right now, demand is about 60 percent uh, uh, below normal and trending upwards towards about 50 percent below normal. So while it's an improvement, there's still an awful long way to go before things are anywhere near normal again. What is the next targeting then for something that might potentially reopen? Well, we'll be bringing back some service to the Southern Gulf Islands. Uh, we've seen demand increase uh, for traffic between Vancouver and the Southern Gulf Islands, as well as between uh, Vancouver Island and Southern Gulf Islands. So on June the 9th, we'll, uh, we'll see an increase in service there. And not long after, the, the small route over here in Southern Vancouver Island, the Mill Bay to Brentwood Bay service will resume at the end of June. Okay, and if things do start to ramp up and that demand starts to come back, then are you concerned about how to keep that physical distancing happening on the ferries? Absolutely. You know, the the health and safety of our customers uh, and of our crew are the number one uh, thing on our mind here right now. So it needs to be a slow and gradual, methodical reopening of the ferry system. So uh, we're, we're fortunate, though. Ferries are, are relatively large compared to trains and airplanes and things like that. So there's room for people to spread out. And, of course, people are still permitted to remain in their cars. And that, that's viewed by many of our travelers as a safe space, a controllable space. And so staying in the cars is a great option. Yeah. How long do you think that might continue for, though? Is that like an indefinite thing? 
Well, it's up to Transport Canada. We work closely with Transport Canada on such things. Uh, we we don't have any indication uh, that uh, they're preparing to move away from it for now. I think it's a very practical way for for people to physically distance. So uh, we're in close conversation with them. If it changes, of course, we'll we'll let our our customers know right away. Do you foresee a return to the full schedule at all in 2020? It will be driven by demand. You know, uh, our goal is to stay ahead of the demand curve from British Columbians. So uh, we're right now, our general way of working is saying whatever the demand is, we want to be 20% more capacity than that, roughly speaking. So that means there's always some slack in the system for British Columbians to access. So we'll be following that demand. Uh, We don't see demand returning to normal this year. Uh, We think we'll even be down a bit even next year, uh, but perhaps the year after. What has this done to the bottom line at BC Ferries? Well, it's it's been very, very tough. Uh, you know, in the depths of the pandemic, we were losing about a million and a half dollars a day. Uh, things are ever so slightly improved now, call it a million dollar a day loss. So it's still very, very dramatic. Um, we've got the financial wherewithal to carry on for, you know, uh, some more time, call it you know, a, a half a year to a year. Uh, but in the long term, we definitely need to have some sort of uh, correction. We need demand to come back. Uh, we need cost control. And of course, any kind of uh, relief that we might find from any sort of federal or provincial program would be very welcome. Is that something that you are lobbying for or working towards, had discussions about? Yeah, a lot of discussion. We're, we're in close contact with uh, provincial and federal officials. Uh, to date, there's been uh, nothing explicit. Uh, But uh, we're confident that they're hearing our case and we continue to work with them. All right, Mr. Collins, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Now that is the CEO of BC Ferries, Mark Collins. More ferry routes are opening up today, including more sailings to Nanaimo. Vancouver Island, as we heard from Vaughn earlier, has gone weeks without a new case of COVID-19. And obviously they want things to stay that way. But let's talk more about the impact this has had on a city like Nanaimo, where ferry service, you know, from Departure Bay to Nanaimo had been such a huge part of that city prior to the pandemic hitting. So joining us now to talk more about that is Nanaimo Mayor. Leonard Crow. Good morning. Good morning. How have things been in Nanaimo? Well, as you pointed out, we have been very successful in Vancouver Island in keeping the uh, the COVID virus at bay. Uh, but at the same time, we have taken an horrendous hit economically. Uh, our hotel occupancy, uh, things related to tourism generally are absolutely in the toilet and it's crushing for a lot of people who have been without work. And I don't see how a number of these businesses are ever going to be able to survive. Uh, That has been the case, I know, everywhere, right, with no hotels open. What about just the regular traffic, too, going through Nanaimo? I mean, lots of people own, you know, vacation properties uh, in the area around Nanaimo as well. That must be a lot of trouble right now. It has been noticeably quiet. Um, I was caught at an intersection the other day on the way to work first thing in the morning, and it's the first time I've, I've had to wait at that light uh, for, uh, well, well over two months. Uh, so in a, in a pra- the practical effect is there's simply not the traffic on the road. It's just not there. I had occasion to go to the mall the other weekend, cause I, well, last week, because I was able to actually get my hair cut for a change. And again, uh, things are, are, are very quiet still. It's going to take a, a long time, and obviously I think most of us are anxiously awaiting an announcement about a vaccine at some point because uh, the province is proceeding very cautiously and slowly to return us to something resembling a normal. And how do you feel about the resumption of some increased ferry service? 
Well, I, I, I have had a number of calls from individuals, emails who are expressing concern. As I say, no offense to the rest of the province, uh, given the numbers, uh, we have been very safe here, relatively speaking, and I, a lot of people are very anxious to uh, ensure that that continues. So uh, I haven't had a lot of people saying, gee, I'm, I'm welcoming back the, the tourists or the vacation visitors or, or the traffic. Um, the people who have taken the time to call are saying, look, uh, could you do something about this? Uh, do we really need this? Is it important? Uh, you know, I understand about the economy, but, but, but. So, uh, but again, it's not a significant number. Uh, there is a quiet in the community, uh, I think, as there is in many places. I mean, people are, uh, people are isolated, and it somehow it doesn't seem to encourage the kind of activity and commentary that you might normally experience, except, and I hate to say this, uh, in my community, uh, around the issue of housing, homelessness, drug addiction, street disorder, and poverty. Uh, that uh, that's a topic that's still very much alive. People aren't talking as much about uh, travel to the island. Yeah, let's talk about that issue then of homelessness and difficulties in dealing with that. What has that been like during the pandemic? Um, basically, if if you came to Nanaimo, um, you would think the only population in our downtown were people who, on the face of it, appeared to be homeless. Uh, Lots of shopping carts and many kinds of tent cities almost popping up overnight and then being cleaned up in the morning uh, in, in a couple of places, including very near City Hall. Uh, I see this morning in the Times Colonist, the uh, province is reporting that they've purchased a, another motor in to house the homeless. Uh, it is still the issue in this community. It is still what people talk to me about the most. And has anything changed? I know that we've talked to you about this in the past as well. And during that time, has anything changed or has the pandemic and kind of lack of ferry service, all of that, has that made it worse? Uh, arguably worse. And interestingly, uh, who knows where folks are coming from, but uh, our bylaws folks and our local police report that we're seeing uh, more and new faces every week in our city. Uh, things are getting worse on the face of it. They're not getting better. I, you know, the city continues to work with BC Housing to try and secure some housing, but it's the supportive housing. And, and as I've argued before, much to the chagrin of the strong civil libertarians, that some form of therapeutic community institutionalization for those in the severe cases is necessary. And that's just not happening. It feels like you know there was an opportunity to have all these discussions in the middle of the pandemic. Clearly, there was a desire to do something. Do you think that time has passed now? I don't think it has passed. I think that indeed um, it's it's being exacerbated by the obviousness of it. As I said earlier, um, you know the only folks on the streets of downtown and I'm you would often see if you saw anybody uh, were those who were apparently homeless and, and no place else to go. Now, you were coming into what would normally be a busy tourist season for a place like Nanaimo. What what are you expecting? Well, uh, for one thing, they're not coming to, they want, there aren't the events to come to that we had before. There's no bathtub weekend. There's no silly boat races. There's no jazz festival. There's no gay pride parade. There are none of the, the no Van Carlin exhibition this year. Many of the major events that were attractive to tourists and important events for the community, events for celebration, uh, they're off the table as they are in communities across this country and well around the world for that matter. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's still a surreal atmosphere, I think, for most of us trying to adjust to a world where there aren't public events. Uh, as a politician used to pressing the flesh on weekends uh, almost every day, uh, <laughs> 
the, uh, the the change is, is quite profound, and, and you see it because when you can't gather in, in larger groups, uh, it, events aren't happening. We're you know in the process of opening up our playgrounds today, mm-hmm. uh, city playgrounds. We are in the process of developing a plan to open some of our larger facilities, but we have to look at costs, for instance, uh, in our community. I mean, if you can only have, quote-unquote, eight people in the pool, are you going to have 20 staff well there to serve them? Uh, does it make economic and practical sense? All those kinds of tough questions that uh, we face. As everyone has said repeatedly, um, shutting things down is relatively easy. Opening things up again is extremely complex and difficult and problematic from from a health perspective and from a financial perspective for municipal governments. What has the financial hit been like for the city of Nanaimo? It's been tough, uh, and as everyone has to understand, the the price paid most obviously is by those who provided services to the city, whether it was full-time, part-time employees or or contracted workers. Um, that affected over 200 people in our city, and we're a city of 100,000. That's a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you then add in all of those people who participated in uh, sports or used our facilities uh, who can't now uh, and and won't be able to for a while. Yeah, it, it's had a, a very significant impact. Well, I'm sure our we'll be- parks are jammed. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if, if we have we have instituted an ambassador program. Uh, to help uh, ensure that people respected social and physical distancing and uh, uh, and were encouraged to wash their hands and do all those things that are appropriate that have kept our numbers down. Right. Um, but people want to be out and about. Let's face it, Simi, it's, uh, it's June. I know. It's, it's hard to believe that, right? People want to know what happened to the rest of March and April and May. You're right, it's June. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. A pleasure as always. Thank you. That is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. So ferry service between Departure Bay and Horseshoe Bay is resuming today with four sailings. So that's two round trips, as we heard from the CEO of BC Ferries. But in Nanaimo, they're still a bit concerned. They've had no new cases on Vancouver Island of COVID-19 for weeks now. They'd like to keep it that way. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this pandemic has had a huge impact on all sorts of businesses, all sorts of industries. We know at retail, especially hard hit. In fact, we are going to be speaking with Jackie Cohen, whose flagship family business, Army and Navy, has been shut down. And this was the one of the big reasons why. She hasn't really talked publicly about it since that announcement, but she is joining us coming up in a few minutes here on the show. But right now, speaking of the pandemic and businesses reopening, we've talked about the issue of COVID-19 surcharges for things that you you know normally go out and do get your hair cut go to a restaurant things like that now we know how you feel about some of those surcharges and joining us now to talk more about that is steve mossop the president at insights west good morning steve good morning timmy so you've been doing some polling on this what did you find out well, I was surprised as maybe you were when I saw one particular business that put up a surcharge labeled it a COVID-19 surcharge. And so, of course, we need to pull on that. And we found that overall people are opposed to that. You know, 62% of British Columbians think that's a bad idea and 32% support. And that surprised me. I thought that people were expecting that given the, the limitations that businesses have for spacing. Uh, yeah, so that surprised me. That does surprise me a little bit too. I thought it would be a bit more even. Like I went to the hair salon, got my hair cut, and I was thrilled to do so, and I could see all the work that they had done, right, to make that happen. They did let me know there is this extra, you know, COVID charge, and I said that's fine because they had been great to me. They had contacted me. It's clear they were doing lots of work. 
but maybe people feel like it depends on the situation. Well, that's the caveat here in our poll. So we looked at overall, are you in favor or opposed to that? But when we break it down by industry categories, we get a slightly different story. We have hair salons uh, where there is actually a, a slim margin of support, 51% versus the 43% who are opposed. So they can, and that again, it's the visual. You can see it. You can see it in restaurants as well. So restaurants, it's the 47% support. And other small non-chain retailers, about 46. So as we go down the line, it really is contingent on the types of services that people are providing in their business. Right. So what kind of services were people like, nope, not going to pay that? Uh, the large chain retailers, that was a firm opposition. So we have 20% support and 75% yeah. uh, who are opposed. Uh, that's understandable, right? You think these are huge corporations and we've still been buying a lot of their stuff. And maybe we're still reeling over you know, things like the airline uh, fuel surcharges and the, and the uproar over that. So it sounds like we're more understanding, Steve, of the smaller businesses, like our local neighborhood places, charging us that as opposed to the big companies. Yes, that is correct. And it's maybe a labeling issue because people overall expect higher prices. They expect to pay more in the future. So 54% of uh, BC residents uh, believe that they just have to accept and pay more in the future for products and services. And perhaps it's just how it's been uh, implemented. Right. And you also noticed in your survey that consumer sentiment has kind of shifted, you said. Well, it shifted in, in the sense that people are, are expecting higher prices. And that surprised me, too. You know, we just heard Michael Levy talking about interest rates and, you know, nor, no foreseeable lift in those because of low inflation. Yet 75% of BC residents feel that there will be inflation coming up and, and 33% who expect it to be a lot higher. So there's a real disconnect between the markets and the average consumer. Have people shifted to thinking more about buying locally? Absolutely. And that's, that is the one shift that we have seen where there's a very strong level of agreement about buying from businesses that are part of not only Canada, but BC, and then very specifically your own local neighborhood. That's about 80% support for that. That's a pretty big shift. It is. It's a, it's a huge number. And we're seeing it. You see it on Facebook stories. You see it in the media. You see it uh, in, in talking with friends and family, like the people searching out the people that actually live in their, in their very block. And, and supporting the businesses in, in their local area. All right, Steve, thanks so much for this. Thank you. That is Steve Mossett, president at Insights West, talking about the latest polling they've done on the issue of COVID-19 surcharges. And as he pointed out, consumer sentiment, he said, in this province has shifted to hyper-localization and support of businesses that are part of the local economy. So you out there, you're very much aware that it's your local retailer, your local you know, barbershop or hair salon, your local restaurant that has been really um, affected by this. And so showing support for that has become very important to so many of you out there. Uh, But the majority of British Columbians surveyed in this, 64% also agree that they're going to have to pay more in the future for many products and services. I can't remember the last time I heard of something like that, where we all know that, yeah, we're going to have to pay more for that. Uh, But you're more forgiving of those COVID-19 surcharges if it is a local business, as opposed to a big business. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a sad day because of the, uh, I guess, iconic nature of a store like Army and Navy in the communities it operates in and as part of that community history. And uh, it will be missed. That was retail consultant and expert David Ian Gray. He was speaking with Global News once we heard, which was a terrible moment for the community and for the retail industry here locally, that Army and Navy stores were all going to be closing permanently. 
That was a tough call. And we wanted to talk about the person who was behind all of this and how tough that call must have been for her. Jackie Cohen joins us now, the owner of Army and Navy. Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me. You've had a couple of weeks to process this now. So how is how are you feeling? Mm, very mixed emotions, you know. Uh, it, it is a very sad time for Western Canada, and I'm really honoured and, and touched at all the stories and the phone calls and the emails that I'm getting from so many people that have had shopping experiences over the last, you know, many decades. But it's um, also a, a time for me to be able to move on. I've just recently become a grandmother. It gets me emotional. Congratulations. And, and I've just got a lot of things from my next journey, my next half of my life that I'm looking forward to. And I'm so proud of, of the 101 years that the family business has done so well, and, and I'm really appreciative. Was the, was the pandemic situation kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, or had this been coming for some time? You know, that's well said. As everyone knows, bricks-and-mortar retail has been a tough business for the last many years, really since the onslaught of Amazon. But Army and Navy was optimistic. We turned 100 last, last year, last May, April, May, and I renovated the downtown east side store and consolidated the Hastings side over to Cordova and gave it a fresh look, bringing back all of the old brick walls and everything. And the year before, I had renovated New Westminster. So we certainly were hoping to go into the second century. But <clears throat> excuse me, when the pandemic hit, forced the closure, we were sitting with all the spring and summer goods and it just became insurmountable, and the writing was on the wall for us, unfortunately. So I would agree with you that it was the straw that broke the camel's back, but um, it certainly did that. You've got the final sale starting, isn't that right? We do, tomorrow, in New Westminster and in the Calgary locations, yes. Okay, so that's going to be a big deal. Well, you know, again, with COVID, you just don't really know what to expect, mm. even though we're doing the social distancing and all of the the you know the health the health advocation and everything we really don't know what to expect we're hoping for for a good reaction our camping and fishing department are beyond i mean we took the inventory from the 3 bc stores and put it into new westminster so that's a big draw and of course ladies love our shoe sale and of course got the men's workwear and work boots i think that the new westminster store has never looked so good <laughs> so we're hoping to get to get good good reaction from this sale it will run about 6 to 8 weeks so um there is not a panic but you know it's always Best selection is always at the beginning, for sure. Now, you and your family, of course, are also very well known for the charitable and philanthropic work that you have done over the years. And your, you. and your connection to the neighborhoods, right, in which mm-hmm. those stores existed, particularly downtown Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, how is that going to change, or is it going to change? You know, I'm still very involved in that block, the Army Navy block. I actually have recently taken over... Uh, the management of an SRO that my family has owned for many years that used to be managed by a, a tenant that rented it from me. And, and I'm wanting the, all the 131 downtown Eastside residents in that um, SRO to have real pride of ownership, and I want to set a new bar, a new standard for SROs in the downtown Eastside. So that certainly is a project near and dear to me. And at the same time, I have other options that I'm looking into as far as the 
to block his concerns. So I will always be, my heart will always be in that block on Cordova Street. Well, it certainly sounds like it too. So you recognize that that probably still needs, you know, work and your help there, the connect, that connection that you have. I have such a connection there and it does need a lot of help beyond my control for sure. And, uh, you know, it is also one of the reasons, to be honest with you, why it became so difficult because the perception and the reality right now is that it is a tough area for people to go down to. So, Hopefully, we will be a part of a turnaround, um, but until that time, I will still be down there and still try and make a difference. And Jackie, what do you want people to remember about this family business? Just that it was a family business filled with a heart and a soul, and as my dad would say, and a smile. And, you know, from Grandpa Sam in 1919 to Jackie in 2020, it's just really had the heart of the family, and I think that that it was felt, you know. I think that everybody knew that we weren't just a company where you were a number. Everybody had a name. I was Jackie, and, you know, somebody was Anita. I think that it was run as a family business, so it makes it even harder for me, you know, to to disappoint so many staff and, you know, and customers, but unfortunately, sometimes in life you can't control situations. No. But I have just so much appreciation and so much love for everybody that helped the business for the last many, many years. Well, listen, we thank you very much for your time and best of luck. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You Thanks too. That is Jackie Cohen, the owner of Army and Navy. And yes, their kind of end of business final sale starts tomorrow in New Westminster. And there, as you heard her say, it'll go six to eight weeks and they've got a lot of stuff to unload there, but it's just classic, classic to go out with one final huge sale, right? Because Army and Navy sales were a real hallmark of their stores. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about the work that she does, particularly in the downtown east side. This is Mornings with Simi. If a business is eligible for the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program, but their landlord has not applied for that support, they are going to be protected from evictions under a new Emergency Program Act order. This emergency order will be in place while the federal program is in place. So that currently goes until the end of June. If there's an expansion of the federal program, we will look at expansion of the order. Okay, so that's Finance Minister Carol James. Bit of a sigh of relief for businesses that were facing eviction. But unless the federal government extends their rent relief program that will set to expire at the end of this month, that might be all some businesses can get. We're going to talk about that now with the help of our next guest. It's Ken Charco, owner of the Dunbar Theatre on Dunbar and director of the Motion Picture Theatre Association of BC. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, you alerted me to this. What is your concern here? Is it the fact that the program ends at the end of June? Is that not enough time for businesses? I have a couple of concerns. Number one, that it does end at the end of June. Uh, Number two, the program itself is very cumbersome, and it puts an undue burden upon the landlords themselves to be the auditor to be able to confirm things. And if they don't audit right, they get penalized, and I think that's unfair to them. And then thirdly, some landlords, because of that concern, simply don't want to go through the trouble of being able to do that. And we're hearing that from small businesses in my association as well as throughout uh, Vancouver that the problems that they're having there. And then lastly is the government has to allow for planning. You can't expect these small businesses that they've asked to close for three months to live on a 30-day notice. It makes it so difficult to make the investments that they need to do 
to keep their staff employed, which is the primary goal of everything we need to be doing right now under the circumstances. Right. Are you hearing from other business owners as well? Is, is eviction a big problem out there? It is. I was on a call um, with Andrew Wilkinson, and I think there's about 500 people on the call, and we went through a number of different uh, scenarios that the small businesses were doing. And out of the 40 calls that I listened to, 39 of them were problems dealing with evictions and concerns around evictions and about uh, rent. What the government has done and the businesses have complied is they asked them to close down for, for three months. That's effectively 24% around maybe 22% of the revenue for the whole year. And considering they have an 8% to 12% profit margin, they all have to work for three years, up to three years, just to make that up. And then they have to negotiate rents. And they've, the government has inadvertently put right. the landlords in a really strong place because they've diverted by on mortgage de, uh, the deferrals for six months that they don't have to negotiate because they don't have the financial pressure that they normally would have. So what would you like That's to see? Yeah, what would you like to see would, happen here? I, I would like to see an Australian model. In Australia, what in Australia does is they provided no evictions for six months. They've provided that the rent is based based on through that six months on the loss of revenue. So if, if you're only doing thirty percent of your revenue over over the next three months, you pay thirty percent of your uh, rent that it was before. And more importantly, it provides for arbitration if either party claims hardships that they, they can be able to go in there. That allows these small businesses that are ninety eight percent of the employees. Uh, to be able to plan, to be able to go through this. Because we don't know as small businesses whether or not we're going to be forced to close again in uh, September, October, November, right. because everyone's talking about the second wave. We, we, we don't know whether or not we're going to get wage subsidies past August. We don't know whether or not when we open up, because some are now opening up, whether or not we're going to make 10% of our revenue, 20% of our revenue, or that. So a lot of businesses are, are not going to be able to do that, considering... These are small businesses that employ 25 and under employees. So you've got, you've got those 25 employees that we've got to call them back and we've got to ask them to get off the government and uh, serve that they're unsure of what they're going to do when that ends. Right. So the confusion in short-term planning is, doesn't allow it. So we ask the, what we're asking all levels of government is to talk together. All right, They're all doing their things, things differently. Let's all talk together and make long-term planning to the degree that needs to be done. All right, Ken, listen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having us. And, uh, and Dunbar Theatre is open for the best popcorn. Uh, come <laughs> by, we're open every day. <laughs> thank you so much. And I know that's the best popcorn. Thank you for that, Ken. That's Ken Charco, owner of the Dunbar Theatre. Another point that he had made when I was talking to him was, you know, if a business like his has to close because of all these problems and complications, I mean, what are the chances that somebody else is going to open another theatre in that neighborhood? Well, very little. No one's going to actually do that. So you're going to lose some valuable businesses that offer something that, you know, the next person probably isn't going to offer.